All the political will in the world cannot conjure up enough sprinkler systems and sprinkler system installers to instantly transform a nation's housing stock. Shut up! Shut up! Shut up! Shut up! Shut up! Oh my fucking god! And you know, at the time, I I was pretty judgy for a 22-year-old secretary who was still living at home. Um, I couldn't understand how she had done this, how she she could be so stupid. And I did what a lot of middle-class people do when they hear stories like this, which is that I attributed it to bad, she had bad judgment, or maybe she didn't have a good work ethic, poor decision-making skills, right? Bad incentives. It took me 20 years and writing a book about failure to understand that this was fundamentally about none of those things. That fundamentally what she was doing was about capital. And that if we want to help the poor climb that ladder into the middle class, into the the stable bourgeois life that everyone in this room enjoys, then we need to address this problem. This is at the core of what opportunity and stability and the American dream is going to mean for millions of poor people who are still trying to climb that ladder. To see why, I want to take a little detour into the rainforest of Paraguay. I swear to God this is going somewhere, so please bear with me. Taking a close look at, at what's around us, there, there is some sort of a harmony. It is the harmony of overwhelming and collective murder. And we, in comparison to the articulate vileness and baseness and obscenity of all this jungle. Uh, we, in comparison to that enormous articulation, we only sound and look like badly pronounced and half-finished sentences out of a stupid suburban novel, cheap novel. All right, uh, you know, I had a bunch of in-studio audience and a bunch of crew here. They're like, who's Ben Shapiro? Well, he's an anointed neocon snot nose who walks around making Richard Pearl type faces where he tries to act scary and powerful. He just recycles a bunch of libertarian conservative thought and a bunch of other think tank stuff. And I just noticed he's always criticizing me and always trying to keep people off my show while he makes little faces like this. Alex versus Ben. Ben versus Alex. It is an allegory for the ages. The sword of logic versus the catapult of reason. Two men, two destinies, two rats, chatting on iPhones, chomping down cheeseburgers, and chilling on the potty. The whole world is watching, the crowd screams. One will lead us to victory, the other, imminent death. When your grandchildren read the textbooks of the future and turn to ask you which side you were on, what will you say? I know what I'd say. Peanut crusty titty bombastic balloon boat scooter. My good bitch. Yes. That's right. My grandchild will be named my good bitch. Welcome back to another episode of the Humor and the Abject podcast, you liberal bashing screedlers. This is Staff Only, the podcast studio manager. My God. My God. Why have you forsaken me? Wait, what's that? When there was one set of footprints. That's because you were riding just above the sand in a Tesla brand hovercraft? Nice as fuck. Anyways. Wow. What an episode we've got for your raggedy little asses this week. Our guest is Matt Chrisman from Chapo Trap House. Let's turn it over to your host, Sean J. Patrick Carney. I'm Ira Glass. Welcome to Jackass. It's episode 72 of the Humor and the Abject podcast. I'm your host, Sean J. Patrick Carney. How are you managing out there in the summer heat, Screedlers? I've been fine, I guess, Uh, but we're in that magical part of the season where New York City smells like a complex potpourri of hot trash, urine, and uh, I guess rats having sex. Um, Just a quick reminder that if you haven't already, consider backing Humor in the Abject on Drip. It's just five bucks a month. 
And for my subscribers, I like to post exclusive video works, pieces of writing, sound pieces, and more. It's an easy and cheap way to show your love and support the show. To sign up, head on over to d.rip slash humor in the abject. And if you've already got an account uh, with Kickstarter because you backed a project or you created one, you can just sign into Drip using that. It's that easy. Now, this week on the podcast, I'm excited to have Matt Chrisman, a writer and absolute treat boy that many of you are going to recognize as one of the co-hosts of the Chapo Trap House podcast. Matt's a really smart and a really kind dude, and no disrespect to the other members of Chapo, but he's always been my favorite person on it. He's impressively knowledgeable about political histories in the United States, and in my humble opinion, he's got the funniest takes on just about everything. If you are a new listener to Humor in the Abject, thanks for checking it out. Every week I talk to artists, comedians, writers, filmmakers, and musicians who I think are funny as hell about what they do and why they do it. Think of it as WTF for people who think that collecting vinyl is stupid. I hope you'll check out some of the conversations in the archive and that you'll subscribe. New episodes every single Sunday. And to those of you who are longtime listeners, thanks, as always, for being true Screedlers. All right, let's get a move on. Here's my conversation with Matt Chrisman. Uh, Matt Chrisman, welcome to Humor in the Abject. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, um, and right off the bat, I just wanted to say that uh, there's no better way to overpower a trickle of doubt than with a flood of naked truth. (laughs) Hallelujah. (laughs) Uh, So most of my listeners already probably know you as one of the co-hosts and co-creators of Chapo Trap House, but until not too long ago, you appeared on the episodes via a very tinny laptop mic. Uh, were you in Cincinnati? I was, yes, for the first uh, like uh, year and a half or so of the show. How long did you live there? I was there all told about four years, Okay, and I was doing the show for like the last year and a half there. Oh, and so then you moved here probably a year or some change ago? Oh, uh, a little less than a year ago, yeah. Oh, wow. Coming yeah, up on coming your up anniversary. On the yes. When's the anniversary? Uh, we moved, uh, we got here September 1st of okay. last year. Okay, wow. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so this is technically a podcast that's about comedy and contemporary art. Uh, and I feel like I already know the answer to this, but do you like art? <laughs> I mean, sure. You know, <laughs> like as a concept, sure. I don't, I don't really pay attention to art as as a thing That's you know i don't i go to the museum sometimes uh, and I, what do they say i know what i like yeah yeah that's about it <laughs> that's <laughs> about as the extent of my um knowledge of art um so people who listen to this all the time will know that this is a trope and i'll apologize for all the midwest questions but i kind of think of myself as a junior midwest cultural attache to the rest of the country uh, are you originally from Wisconsin? Yes. All right. Where'd you grow up there? I grew up in Manitowoc, oh, which people yeah. will know uh-huh. as the making a murderer yeah, town. Yeah. <laughs> that was actually like the way I could, when I was just an unemployed, uh, you know, dork, uh, like the last year or so before the show came out, like that was my conversation starter. Yeah. They'd be like, where are you from? I'm from that town, from that Netflix show you love, I'm sure. It's kind of like straight across Lake Michigan from where I grew up, maybe a little bit south. But. Oh yeah, we have a we have a car ferry. Oh yeah, Manitowoc has a car ferry that goes across to Michigan. Uh, I can't remember the name of the town that it goes to. I never took it. <laughs> the, now that it's got it, that car ferry, I believe is being owned because uh, it might even have closed by now. But they introduced a faster one at Milwaukee, and I think that kind of killed the ferry. Oh, well, but there was a ferry that went across to uh luddington luddington oh That's i've been to i've been to luddington yes. i went to a i don't remember what it was called exactly like the the big macker or something it was like a basketball tournament when i was like, <laughs> when i was a tween i went to one yeah. that was there and it looks like it's still going oh that's uh, good so yeah there's still a, there's still a ferry from manitowoc to luddington <laughs> do you think that um at all that part of your i guess kind of sense of humor or your your sensibility of what you find funny has anything to do with being from like a small town in the Midwest? I mean, it gives you that sense of remove, I think, that that uh, I think it generates a lot of a comedic sensibility. I, I think you have to have a certain sort of distance yeah. from your surroundings to ever really be able to to develop, you know, a comedic sensibility because you have to sort of be able to analyze things, 
you know, at some sort of an angle in order to pick out what's funny about them. And I feel like, yeah, like a small town Midwestern upbringing is, is for the right person, obviously, is, is it, it creates sort of a Petri dish, you know, it, it creates a, a social order that is very easy to get alienated from. Yeah. <laughs> and then that alienation can kind of, uh, you know, fuel a comedic response to it. Sure. Yeah. Like, could, as a coping mechanism at yeah, first. It could go like two ways. You could go that way or you could, I guess, become like a school shooter or something. Yeah. Could that's basically your choices. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, so, I mean, you don't, uh, I, I wouldn't say that you would call yourself a comedian. Uh, you just happen to be a really funny person. Um, and that's a respectable way to live your life, I think. And do you, do you feel like you actively are trying to dream up funny things to, to, I guess, kind of react to, th- to social situations or political situations that if we look at them objectively, technically aren't funny, or is it just kind of how you naturally cope or react to things? Uh, I think it's a combination of those things. I do, it just, it, it is, it is a, it is a coping mechanism in the pure sense that it is how I sort of process and, and, and metabolize information mm. and events. Uh, that's just how that, 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 that voice, that sort of, that part of me that's always a bit removed from actual, like vital moment and, and is always sort of an analytical, it ends up sort of recapitulating what's being absorbed comedically, finding something funny in it as sort of a way of understanding it. Yeah. And then also it, it does then to be funny publicly and to try to make a joke out of something is just a way to, I don't know, assert control power, uh, and, and make it legible, you know, make, make it understandable by, by putting it in a context of sort of extreme and, 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 uh, grotesque humor because that's the sort of thing that my entire adult life I have found is the unifying factor of basically everything happening around me is just this steadying grim worsening this 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 death march this sense of just uh eclipsed hope and 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 rapid dehumanization and and in that context comic sort of comedic exaggeration and comedic uh underlining is the only thing that makes sense as a way to respond to it it's like because you know just 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 absorbing it just sort of you know uh just taking it as it comes that just seems to me to be i mean i don't even know how you'd live that way because it would just be so grim you know if you can't if you cannot make some sort of a sickly enjoyable spectacle of it for yourself then you're just you're just witnessing a parade of horrors you're that kid in come and see you know and then that's no fun yeah that's no way to live i wonder if the it seems maybe particularly different for i don't know how old you are but i was born in the 80s and it doesn't feel like any potential social or cultural revolution has come to any point where we kind of were like oh and then this thing was achieved socially in the united states i mean of course, I guess the election of Barack Obama felt like a moment or something, but in the way that I guess there was a lot of comedy around Abby Hoffman and the yippies and things like that. But then that generation of people who were merry pranksters in the sixties, as soon as the Vietnam war is over and the Reagan years start, they all turn from yippies into yuppies Mm -hmm. and they start buying houses and they become more conservative as opposed to, and kind of lose their senses of humor, I guess. Oh yeah. It felt like they got what they asked for in the bargaining deal. And since, you know, the people I'm talking about are predominantly like white middle class people. They, uh, you know, like sold out. That's a cheesy term, but <laughs> for lack of a better term, and they kind of quit being funny. Right. Because they didn't need to be funny. Yeah. Yeah. Because things were going well. Yeah. You could buy a house for $60,000. Yeah. They like, got their deal. <laughs> it worked out fine for them. Um, in like an, in like an average week for you, um, what does your, I guess, kind of like reading diet look like? And, and I'm asking this because I'm pretty baffled consistently by how much knowledge you have of canonized popular culture, like SoundCloud rap, notwithstanding, (laughs) but (laughs) but like you have a lot of cultural reference points, but you also seem to know the minutia of political power broking kind of in real time. And I mean, I just, as I listen to things like that, you seem pretty informed and does that just mean that you're consuming 
like just reading a lot or how do you yeah i mean i i do read a lot i don't read as many books as i wish i was i i, I really have had a lot of my book i used to read a lot more uh in terms just you know uh non-fiction and fiction and then the internet has done a, just dissolved a lot of that my attention span like it has with so many other people but i i am online reading you know i'm not watching yeah. youtube videos so uh <laughs> uh I, that is what like on a day-to-day basis sort of how i sort of metabolize and and uh and contextualize things is by, you know, jumping around, reading different articles, reading things, coming across the transom, kind of the same stuff other people do. But I guess it's just a matter, matter for me of retention, maybe. Yeah. Like that just sticks in my head. And and that makes it possible for me to, on the show, just sort of, you know, extemporaneously talk about these things. But yeah, for the most part, it's just it's just the same sort of misery sheet of online facts that everybody else is sort of confronted with and i just i guess choose to pay more attention than i frankly probably should do you feel like you know what your um rage triggers are like which things Uh, i mean i know that's kind of a calling card for you is that people get really excited when matt yeah flips out and starts screaming and it was it was extra funny when you were on a laptop mike years ago because i remember a couple times i think your neighbors would yell at you well that happened that was in canada i was in canada (laughs) I was in Your Canada. Canadian neighbors yelled. At yeah, that's... well, I was in Canada with my wife. She was at a, um, she was at a, like a summer refresher, or, or she was getting a, a like a, a, a summer certificate in her discipline. And I met her there, and we were staying in the dorms, in the empty dorms, at the University of Victoria in British Columbia. And I was recording the show for my laptop, and we were reading a Megan McArdle <laughs> article. And if you want to say, ask what gets me mad the most consistent thing is megan mcardle nothing comes close i mean like david brooks those guys they can they can get me annoyed but nobody can just send me from zero to 60 like megan mcardle it is genuinely a gift and she was doing just her awful article about the grenfeld fire and how you know hey opportunity costs if you fix this (laughs) Who knows? Maybe Hitler was in there and you killed him by burning it down. You know, that kind of thing. Like the million butterflies, but only when it comes to any kind of reform. Any, there is no unintended consequences to any other action, like, say, invading Iraq. But anyway, uh, so I got so mad. I was I'm yelling. Sorry, I'm not trying to wake you up right now. Uh, I'm doing it myself. Uh, and so we were talking and then I just... I. I, I just couldn't hear it anymore because she has this, she has this drone. She has yeah. this, this soporific effect where her words are just, just, it's like a brick wall made of margarine. It's just this, they have no content. It's just this, yeah. this, just the banality. It's this marching banality and it just gets in my head and I can't hear it anymore. So I just started yelling, shut up. And apparently there were other people in the dorm, and they called the security, and they knocked on the door, and uh, I told them I, I, I could calm it down. My wife actually was outside with uh, a classmate, and she was coming towards the uh, building, and she saw the people go in. She saw the security guards go in, and she said to her friend, she said, oh, I bet they're coming for Matt. <laughs> And then, and then I told her, yeah, they did. Uh, so the answer is, number one is Megan McArdle. Uh she's the most consistent i try not to be too i i I don't want it to be a shtick is the thing i don't want it to be because that's one of the sort of more most unbearable cliches of of like politically inflected humor is sort of like the lewis black dennis miller like oh i'm so mad uh but they're not mad you know uh and so i i i never i try to never put it on and it really is just some things just make like for example the most recent is uh, when we were doing the episode about Dan Pfeiffer's book, the oh, Pod yeah. Save America and guy. He's, he's a guy, did he work for Obama? He worked for Obama, right? yes. Okay. And he was talking about all the horrible stuff that the Republicans did, all of the propaganda ops mm-hmm. that they did against the Democrats that were so unfair. And one of them, and there's listing all these horrible conspiracy theories that they had ginned up to delegitimize Obama. And and he mentions Acorn and, and the lies they said about Acorn. And... The Democratic Congress killed Acorn after that happened, after that psychopathic uh, prep school fucking fraud, James O'Keefe went in there dressed like a pimp and and cut up a bunch of fake video together. There was a Democratic Congress that killed Acorn and maybe cost Hillary the election because they did so much uh, voter registration work. And to have these guys now lamenting the horror 
of of the unfair lies that were told about yeah. Acorn when at the time they were absolutely willing to just sell them out and and let them burn and and let them be destroyed because it would because well people are mad and we we have to accommodate that that fecklessness was so infuriating that uh, it gave me a moment well, where I, I got a little <clears throat> I got a little hooting and holler in there. Well, it seems like I mean I guess the thread that maybe comes between those things is that I mean clearly it's clearly the hypocrisy of people is not something like I I'm sure that you like I feel very desensitized to it now. It's just like you yeah, know, somebody's like the world Trump Trump lied on ta- Trump said something on tape and then denied it later, which is like irrefutable evidence that he is a liar. Or whatever. And yeah. it's like nobody cares. No one cares. But it seems like what if I'm kind of like armchair psychoanalyzing <laughs> this, that what's what's so frustrating in a situation like McArdle or Pfeiffer's book or something is that it's the predictability of what they're going to do yeah. or, or the or the the take that they're going to have. Because I know when oftentimes during the uh, reading series, particularly with Megan McArdle or something, you'll call what she's going to say yeah. in like a paragraph. And oh, like, yeah. Does she say this? And yeah. It's like, but it's like a recipe or like a bad pop song or just something that's very, very, very obvious what's going to happen. Um, yeah, I guess thinking about it, I think part of it is just that these people have so much power over us. The ideology that they promote is so all-encompassing, and yet there's so little effort put in. <laughs> you know, there's so little thought... Yeah, there's there's such a minimal required uh, output uh, intellectually to because it's just because it's so all all encompassing because it's so totalizing they don't even need to have any kind of elan or any kind of real like intellectual vigor or or work ethic or 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 uh, even pride in their arguments it's just it's just filling space because what difference does it make it it all just exists to fill the heads of of incredibly self-satisfied uh, yeah. wealth producers who then after reading it can, you know, just be feel that much more uh, comfortable with how much obscene wealth they have. Yeah. That's all that they, they're just comforting the comfortable. And that requires very little effort because these people don't really want to be challenged. They want, you know, to, to be reassured in their position. And so they're basically courtiers. Yeah. And, and I guess, yeah, just like, the low effort required to pass as one of those people is, is very galling. Well, it's really easy to maintain that when there's only like two options in town. It's yeah. just like if you live in a shitty town in the middle of nowhere and there's two restaurants that seem slightly fancy, it's like everyone agrees that both are the best restaurants Yeah. or the most logical places yeah, to they go got, for a fancy dinner. Because they have cloth napkins. Yeah. Oh my God. I used to work in this place open in my hometown in Michigan. That was called Miko's. It was this Italian restaurant. I worked there when I was in high school. And uh, they had, it was this Italian family. You guys would probably like this. It was this Italian family who definitely, you know, their entire architecture of the way that they behaved was based on Italian-American films. (laughs) Or films about Italian-Americans. I mean, it's a horrible caricature of it. But they had 100% burned down their previous restaurant. (laughs) We busted it out. You light a match. They had a restaurant (laughs) at this place called Torch Lake, which is in northern Michigan. And uh, and it was called Miko's, and it was like the grandfather owner or whatever. And like... everyone kind of assumed that the son Joe and the other son Dominic had burned the place to the ground for the insurance money and then moved the restaurant to Traverse city and, uh, opened it up and like really like rocketed the scale. I mean, it was like a previously, it was probably like a red and white checkerboard tablecloth, whatever, like lots of free bread. Sure. And then it was into like, you know, there was like prosciutto and peas and like all the like different stuff like that. And it was like the most insane place I've ever worked in my life. I was a bus boy and, the owner, he just, he was a John Travolta impersonator <laughs> and he had been on, uh, what was that show that Alfonso Ribeiro hosted? You know what I'm talking oh, about? Yeah. Carlton. Uh, was that was America's guy talent? Something like that. Right. Yeah. And, and he had appeared on it with this woman and she was Olivia Newton, John, and he was John Travolta. <laughs> and this guy could not let this go. He's like, he's literally like a, he's the micro version of what Travolta is in the real world, <laughs> but he like couldn't let it go. And he would perform in the bar on Friday and Saturday nights with a band. It was Dominic Chown on the piano and this guy named Ronnie on the drums. And then Dominic would sing and he would sing the piano man and all this shit. And he was just such a smarmy, gross dude. And he, <laughs> the one, mem- one memory that I have that's really distinct is this like running gag between all of us on the like wait in the kitchen staff was that he couldn't hit, the key change in Ricky Martin's Live in La Vida Loca. <laughs> Every time that it would go to upside in, he would go flat and he would be so upset. And like, 
and the <laughs> piano player would glare at him and it was like this beautiful moment but i don't really know what oh but anyways people in my t- the point i'm trying to make is people in my town thought it was like a nice restaurant because it had bleach white cloth napkins lots of windows like yeah. you could get these things that you hadn't you couldn't pronounce yeah, or whatever yeah. but it was run by a bunch of fucking morons. <laughs> like the one son, the, Dominic's brother, Joe. I mean, I think I can say, I don't give a shit. This happened. Yeah. Like his brother, Joe, was living in his office in the kitchen because his wife was divorcing him at the time. <laughs> and she would like bring the kids by the restaurant. Like that's when he had his father's time. It was. <laughs> oh, my God. It was insane. And all of the cooks they brought in from Torch Lake. And all these guys were just in abject poverty. You know, they were really poor and they were all like either sleeping in their cars in the parking lot or living at this like hourly hotel downtown and stuff. It was like so insane. And there was one Italian guy there named Giorgio. He was the lead uh, server. And one time, uh, I think he hit, no, Joe hit him in the face with like a hot cast iron skillet. And it was like, it was like, the, it was like, it had gone so insane. And, uh, but I just worked there for, you know, a little while in high school. And then I, and then I left. Damn. Yeah. They let me be the, they let me do all the scheduling for all the busters. I was like 16 years old <laughs> and, and the barbacks and they were all adults. So I don't know. Damn. But. Anyways, the point is, is that yeah. people who can posture and pretend like something is like the only game in town exactly. and thereby everybody just sort of agrees to it. And if yeah. there's no alternative, then the status quo doesn't get nudged at all. Yeah. And these people can do the bare minimal effort yeah. to make something seem Absolutely. palatable. Just, yeah. Do you ever, are you ever just, I mean, okay, it's your job to not do this, but I mean, don't you ever just get so overwhelmed and you just want to stop? looking at this stuff i mean i know you technically have to but don't you ever just want to like rewatch deadwood and like unplug for a week or something you know i don't okay i have to say that <laughs> uh if i really think about it right. i i have a morbid fascination and i kind of need i need it yeah i don't know why that's not a good thing i'm not saying <laughs> that it is i'm it's probably bespeaks some sort of pathology in me or some sort of problem but I do have this thing of like, what happened? What did they do? Yeah. What a horror is happening? What 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 Verhoeven movie, uh, you know, outtake is occurring presently? I need to know. And I don't know why I do, but I feel like I would have a very hard time unplugging. You couldn't be that guy from. Do you remember that New York Times article? Yes, <laughs> the guy is like, I shan't be learning anything about this. In the local coffee shop, like, big on. No, they all know, and they're like, when he comes in for his croissant, <laughs> do not mention anything about the real world. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, no. I mean, I think the flip side of that is that, of course, sometimes it feels overwhelming. But the idea of it, it would be a privilege to be like, I'm like this guy. I mean, that's oh, what yeah. he got shit on for was he was like, I just have enough money where I don't have to pay attention to this. Yeah. And that's a, that's a pretty wild position to find yeah. yourself. I in. mean, I think about sometimes the, those the billionaires who tweet all the time, like Notch and, and Musk, and and the the craziness of what are you doing? What are you posting for? You have billions of dollars. Yeah, and some Would of them still some, post. Like, well, that's the thing. Like Musk actually has to post. Like people keep wondering, what is he doing? Well, his whole business is is smoke and mirrors. Yeah, and and he and, and it's in it and like Tesla's stock honestly is entirely buoyed by free publicity yeah. and by a positive you know media presence and so he has to tweet actually so he, he, you can look at him being an insane narcissist but he's sort of lashed to the to the wheel there he has to do that but then there are those guys like Notch you know who just sold Minecraft and he has a billion dollars in it and a house with a candy room that rotted cuz he didn't have any friends to eat it with <laughs> I don't know if you know about that story. I don't. Yeah, he bought a <laughs> ma- mansion, and one of the one of the rooms was like made of candy. Like the furniture was made of. Candy? I think like the walls or something, <laughs> where it was like filled with candy. Okay. It was a candy room, and he was going to have candy parties. And then he doesn't candy know he doesn't parties. have any friends, so nobody ate it, and it all rotted. <laughs> um, but so like that guy doesn't have to be on Twitter, but he's yeah. on there because he's a poster. And I wonder about that. It's like if I had, if I could p- plug out, if mm. I could unplug, yeah. if I could not deal with any of this i think honestly i think i would try unplugging maybe just as an experiment since i never have but i have a feeling i'd be posting eventually even if you were just posting in your mind yeah that's the thing is i would i would be posting in my mind and eventually i would want to actually get them out there i'd be like i don't want what i'm putting these posts in in my note 
document that's no good you i need these to get out there nail it to the door yeah the <laughs> they're not accumulating any faves on my notes <laughs> i gotta put them out there so i sadly i think even if i was some unaccountable zillionaire i'd probably still post yeah but i mean i think that of course there's the tie to the serotonin rush of getting the attention or something like that but at the same time i mean i feel like you and the rest of the people that you work with have to kind of like feel in some sense like it's not just an ego thing about look how popular or how many people retweeted this but it's like i mean you can see a residual effect of the media that you're producing in the way that it's causing lots of people to want to be involved in politics and paying attention and people who could have very easily followed what i was describing earlier which is this kind of you get into your late 20s or 30s and you become a yuppie yeah and i mean it's changing the way that a lot of people think about themselves in relationship to politics and particularly to capitalism. I mean, you've got a good audience. You've got a bunch of people who owe a hundred fucking thousand dollars for going to college. You're <laughs> never going yeah. <laughs> to want anything, but I mean, part of it is a, I guess, a, you know, it sounds goofy to say it's a social responsibility, but you've kind of started something. You, it seems like you got to see it through. Oh yeah. I mean, that's the other thing is that um, <clears throat> it's, it's 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 sort of breathtaking to, to think of the number of people who might have genuinely had their like ideological and even maybe their life trajectory altered by by listening to us and that that's kind of insane to think about honestly but um yeah but as somebody who listens i mean it's it's a it's a thing like yeah people no listen to it, it and... absolutely is I've, I've encountered enough people to know that it is and um and i think that is really where the posting urge comes from also is just that knowledge <laughs> that you are you're part of a community in a weird way. You're yeah. part of people who are sort of coming to sort of a mutual understanding of the world around them and coming to an awareness of their own power to change it. And that's, that's pretty exciting. Yeah. I came out of the, there's a, there's this grocery store in the corner here that is lovely that I love. And I came out and there's this guy, it's, I don't know, like a week, a week and a half ago or something. And he's out there. It's, you know, almost a hundred degrees. It's like four o'clock. He's just sweating and he's standing there and he's got a clipboard and he's trying to get people to sign to get um, Salazar on the yes, ballot. And yes. so, and he's standing out there and he was like, Hey, are you registered? In the and I was like, Oh yeah, man. Like I'll, yeah. Is that for Salazar? I'll sign it. That sounds great. Um, and I said something like, you know, thanks for being out here. I know it's hot as shit and that's really cool. And he's like, he's like, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, He's like, a year ago, I would have never thought that I'd be doing this or something. He's like, you know, she's she's doing an event around the corner tomorrow night with this uh, with this podcaster. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, what? Po I mean, I didn't know about the show, but I was like, what podcaster is that? And he was like, uh, his name is Virgil Texas. And I was like, I know, I know who that is. But, and, I don't, and I don't know. This guy's name was Jeff. He was fucking cool. He was yeah. really nice. But he kind of basically, he didn't say this, but it sort of seemed like he had gotten really, really involved with things over the last year or two and i couldn't help but think that it probably had something to do with that and yeah probably and he's like gathering signatures i mean that's a shitty fucking job yeah well, and, it's um, not a job he's volunteering yeah and virgil told me when he was at the the uh ocasio cartel's uh victory party surprise victory party that uh that they told him that a lot of the people who came out like something like 10 percent of the people who they got to do the door knocking and the signature stuff were from our subreddit. <laughs> uh, apparently that was like a place where people were posting things about signing up to work for her and, and uh, people did. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty cool. It's weird. Yeah. I mean, especially since it's fucking Reddit. Yeah. Well, it's like you, the only good thing that's ever come out of it. I think your board is kind of filled with like in seltzers though. That sort of like uh it's weird i check it I, I have to admit i look at it i'm fascinated by it and it is such a weird it's a weird cross-section of people because you've got like the yeah these you've got these guys who are who clearly like would have become pepes you know yeah. like have the exact same social origin as a pepe and you know like no like you know no job prospects neat uh not virgins, you know, incels, uh, but may, they've sort of directed their dissatisfaction at capitalism as opposed to, you know, the bell curve or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and that that's good. But then you also have like weird shit posters and then a bunch of very earnest communists who think that we are sellout pieces of shit, but still post on the Reddit all the time. It's very post. Yeah. It's very odd. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it goes back to, you know, the, the, comment earlier about 
um, the couple of paths that you can pick if you're from a particular background in the Midwest or something. And mm-hmm. as much as that's like a reductive joke at the same time, like, yeah, I think of a lot of people who encountered the right media or talked to the right people at the right time who really could have taken a hard turn, right. And mm-hmm. instead someone enfranchised them to think, uh, more broadly about class struggle mm-hmm. and by being able to look at class as a kind of political status, instead of turning into people who saw that, you know, um, a trans person wanting you to use their correct pronouns as some kind of like aggressive identity politics. Instead, they thought, Hey, we're all part of the same sort of bandwidth of capital and we're getting fucked. Yes. And so it creates a solidarity and you, and you move those people left and, and I don't, I mean the Royal you, but, uh, but I think it's, it's not to be understated how much like that can change a generation of people who either could have become, cheesy yuppies or could have become fucking nazis yeah you know because it's 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 just such a brutally alienating space just you know life obviously and then trying to survive and um like the 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 ever shrinking crumbs that are sort of being dropped by the overclass and and also online and and sort of the, the the really pathological nature of of trying to forge an identity on the internet which so many people are doing is sort of an adjunct to you know they're not sufficient daily life yeah uh and there's so many things militating against solidarity there's so many things pushing you towards sort of grabbing some element of your identity and then just doubling down on it be it your preference for like star wars or or marvel versus dc or or whiteness you know or or anything really any kind of uh, uh, uh element of of yourself that you can sort of build around because otherwise you're just sort of this this denatured uh neoliberal subject who who has no identity really and has no place in the world has no uh doesn't have the sort of grounded um you know family structure or or career path of previous generations so what are you going to be you know and yeah. and the answer that is presented especially by people who go online is well you can be x y or z and and then that means that you get with that all of these people who are your enemies who are trying to somehow suppress you or undermine mm-hmm. you and it is really just this this shadow game that overtakes our understanding of the actual material determiners of our lives and I, I i like to think that a show like ours and, uh, and and a lot of other things that are sprouting up at the same time uh are trying to sort of push against that and say you don't have to pick these frankly superficial or or arbitrary uh markers to try to build an identity around you can like you can try to become part of something yeah and and not a fandom, basically, which is your other, which is the options that you're given online. Right, you can be anti-capitalist and you still get to be mad. Yeah, but you get to be mad at like you get to be mad at the right thing. Yeah, you, you right. don't. You're not spending all of this this emotional energy on on phantoms. Yeah, and I think a lot of it has to do with um, there's an there's a kind of humiliation around debt. There's yeah. a humiliation around not being able to kind of fulfill these. Uh, frankly, at this point, like arcane. Uh, gender roles Mm -hmm. and so i i don't uh sympathize with them but i under it i understand logically why people go fucking right wing yeah and turn into nutsos right i i can like i get it if you uh, if you're applying for a job and you're thinking well now i'm a white man and they're not going to pick me Mm -hmm. because they don't need any more white men or something like that like yeah but it's just i mean who who's the quote from that equality feels like oppression to like the privileged yeah you know I, mean? I mean it's just like well hey guess what like so maybe right now like you might get overlooked for this one thing but let's think about the last several centuries right like, and, and, it's and kind of like and everybody is being expected to to accept less yeah and everybody is given somebody to blame for that except the system that's perpetuating it. yeah and that's oh it's it won't and it gets frustrating to watch I don't know. It's like, would it be, I mean, it's beating a dead horse at this point, but to talk about the the idea of people voting against their own self-interest, but it's because there's a boogeyman. There's mm-hmm. like an other, and they're, they're voting because they hate something else, not because they're excited about a particular policy right. or a candidate. They dislike 
things that that candidate also dislikes. Yeah. And the thing is, is that that is an interest. That is a psychological interest, that sense of maintaining a hierarchy. When you are being in, when your life is, is being visual, like your, your opportunities, your chances in life, your expectations are being reduced. Your horizons are being reduced. Uh, that alternative psychological benefit of, of maintaining a place in a hierarchy, that's a legitimate, that's an actual interest, especially in the absence yeah. of any political alternative uh-huh. for your material interests. Because to say you're voting against your interest really implies that like the, the broad center left in America is going to do anything to help your material reality when we know it won't. Yeah. It, it, it has no real interest in it's, it. It will mili- it'll ameliorate some of the worst excesses maybe you know, it'll give you some some tax credits or something. It'll give you like a, a means tested sort of uh, palliative, but it will not. It'll not change the horizons of your expected life outcomes. It yeah. can't. And so, in the absence of an option, those kind of psychological benefits become real. They become real interests, and you are voting your interest. You're voting your interest in maintaining a place in a hierarchy that keeps you at the top psychologically, even if materially even you're, if you're, you're, getting you're losing yeah. losing more and more. No, that's interesting. I mean, it makes me, as you were describing it, I was thinking about the kind of the irony of the concept of red pilling is that you get to, but then the way that you were just describing it, it's like, okay, I'm sure there's a spectrum of where people get to by taking the red pill. And I think a lot of them, uh, their, their red pill journey stops at like, uh, well, women want to be liberated. So that's why I'm getting fucked and everybody wants me to be politically correct. But then there are probably a little bit more savvy, uh, little Nazis that, get to a point where yeah they realize that like well yeah i'm being materially fucked but the pecking order is in my benefit and so to maintain it even if i'm not at the top of that particular economic order i'm higher up than these people and we want to make sure that that continues to stay that way yeah because shit's rolling downhill and you know you want to be as to- as close to the top of the hill as possible <laughs> get as little shit on you as, as you have to jesus christ um now I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, television and something in particular. And you, am I correct that you wrote something for Current Affairs kind of about prestige television? I did, yes. Okay, because it said Matthew, and I just wanted to make sure. <laughs> yeah, no, that was it, me. It had your vocab. But yeah. you were talking about kind of like the empty promises of prestige TV, and mm-hmm. even though there are some good things or whatever. And, and as much as this isn't a prestige television program that I'm now seeing getting a lot of attention, it's coming out on what would fancy itself a prestige network on showtime and it's the new sasha baron cohen oh yeah who is america i'm very excited for that and i mean how do you feel about it though because i i have to be honest that i was a little ambivalent in this pre-uproar i mean like let's of course like let's trigger sarah palin like that makes me (laughs) laugh um but i guess my my kind of like being torn on which way to feel about it is that i i wonder if like culture jamming or like that kind of political satire um is a viable means towards anything except just like a release valve or kind of like and, and it's clearly going to be more radical than the daily show but mm-hmm. i worry if those <clears throat> if those kind of things um do they only preach to the converted and do they only serve as kind of like a a way to be like not that they're going to bring people across the aisle or whatever but i don't know it just it's like all the anything that's anti-Trump sant- satire is just so fucking like flaccid. I don't know. And, and not that, I mean, no, no, Sasha I, Baron Cohen's a much, I think, gnarlier provocateur, but I don't know how I feel about that show. And obviously it hasn't come out. So. Yeah, no, I've, I've got that same sense. I, I, I have that same feeling, uh, seeing ch- just Dick Cheney on, on screen and, and watching him and just thinking, you know, Oh my God! Look what he's doing. He's 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 signing a, a waterboarding. Uh, that was the big clip that they put out. Is Dick Cheney signing a waterboarding kit? You know, and, and <laughs> like that. as a like as a souvenir. Yes. Oh, okay. And so, and the first moment you're like, oh my God, you know, and he's like got his awful Joker grin and everything. Yeah. And you have that one mo- that first frisioning moment of like, oh my God, look at that. But then you think about it, you look at it again, and you know he is smiling because. He can do that. Yeah. He can sign a fucking waterboarding kit because he's beyond justice. He will never, ever, ever be brought to justice. And he, he can just, he, he can be a butt of a joke. He can, and you know what? He might have even known that that was a joke. Yeah. He might have even have gone along with it for fun because what <clears throat> difference does it make to him? 
You know, it has no impact on his life and if he gets he, owned. He hasn't been on the news in a while. I'm sure you get a little jostle knowing. I yeah. mean, he's gonna, a bunch of people are going to come to his defense. Of course. Like, probably a lot of people in the center liberal spectrum, too. Yeah. are going to be like, why would you, why are you tricking these people? Yeah, maybe he can get them to donate to his awful daughter's re-election campaign. He's a war hero. Yeah, <laughs> so he's a war on terror hero. <laughs> hero. But yeah, I mean, I guess that stuff, I I think a lot about reflecting on um, the Daily Show during the Bush era. And, you know, at the time, I'm not going to pretend like I was some kind of like incredibly intelligent person. I mean, I thought a lot of it was funny. You know, mm-hmm. I liked Stephen Colbert. I, yeah. I, and, but in hindsight, I just wonder all the time, like, God, what the fuck did that do? Oh, yeah. Besides turn these people into like buffoons or yeah. clowns that we could kind of like... I mean, it neutralized the actual heinous... Well, it aestheticized all politics. Yeah. It, it turned it turned every objection to, to conservatism and to the Bush uh, administration, which, you know, was a cabal of war criminals and, and butchers. It really just turned it into a aesthetic uh, embarrassment. It was bad. Fox News was bad. Bush was bad. Not for what they did, but the way they said it. Yeah. The sort of the lack of decorum or, or, or the, the lack of, uh, of sophistication. Yeah. And so that just ended up, it just fed into the culture war bullshit because that made everybody who liked him feel like they were being attacked for not being sophisticated. Right. As though sophistication is a mark of virtue, which <laughs> it is absolutely not. Uh, and of course, you know, the real... The Ragnarok of the whole thing, the ultimate of of political comedy in the 21st century, was that fucking rally to restore sanity. Thing oh yeah, and in 2010, or fear and or fear. God, that was. I mean, that was the end of everything. And I mean, it, 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 what's crazy is is that it didn't end political satire in America, which it should have. I mean, we now are in a, in a, in a situation with Trump where there are 50 fucking daily shows. Yeah. There, there, every show is the daily show. Now every comedy show on television is the daily show. Every late night show is the daily show, except for Jimmy Fallon, who, which is like, uh, like that fucking show from RoboCop. He's like Bixby Snyder, the guy who goes, I'll buy that for a dollar, but everything else like Colbert, uh, Seth Meyers, they're all the Daily Show. All the ones on cable. Yeah. So they have to be the literal Daily Show. They're all the Daily Show. Fucking John Oliver. So there's 50 Daily Shows. Yeah. And they're all saying the same jokes about Trump being a buffoon, which yeah. is just a recapitulation well, of bad, making the jokes bad manners. About, about Bush being kind of a hick. A dumbass, yeah. And at no point are you really drilling down to the genuine horror of what's being done. And then, then that... Rally to Restore Sanity was a perfect example. It was a response to the Tea Party uprising, and its objection to the Tea Party was not that it was a revengeist sort of white nationalist proto, you know, movement. It's that they were intemperate in their speech. Yeah. It's that they were um, they were rude. They they were they said mean things to congressmen at their at their uh, town hall meetings yeah and and so they were going to have a big rally to say everybody we don't have any ideological objection to anything ideology doesn't exist what exists is decorum <laughs> civility and civility and we need to <laughs> reify it and it's like well, that's comedy it's like that's the fucking, opposite of comedy it's like 10 years ago at this yeah, point that's the opposite of comedy and the funny thing is is then after that you had uh occupy happened shortly after that uh and they would go down to Zuccotti Park and they would interview the kids and they would roll their eyes at them for being a bunch of naive hippies. Mm-hmm. And it was just the exact same heuristic f- for analyzing everything. It's the what degree does it deviate from our perceived notion of sophisticated urban deportment? And that's the degree to which we can make fun of something. Yeah. And that has been the model that all of these supposed political sat- satirical shows have have uh stuck with ever since yeah and it's kind of it's it's actually mind-blowing to think about in an era where i mean i kind of get it to an extent because trump is not a satir satirizable character no you can't satirize him uh they they still try for some fucking reason Mm -hmm. i I mean like that i do not get like the like the the cartoon show they did on showtime where like he's Trump. What the fuck are you doing? He yeah. cannot be satired. He cannot be satirized. And because he can't be satirized, that has really just left them with nothing to do other than just kind of hoot and gesture at him and like throw f- just, just like point and be like, no, what, 
what, look, look, look. Yeah. Like they're almost pre-verbal at this point. Well, it's really strange because it all has to do with decorum. Like I will, I will admit that I oftentimes just to see what's going on. I hate watch, uh, like the Colbert monologue during oh God, lunch. Yeah. And then I'll, I'll watch like that. And then the Seth Meyers thing, which is always the same. I mean, same the, jokes. the writers are just across the They're hall. the same jokes. They're passing notes. It's insane. But the thing is, is with Colbert, the thing that drives me insane is the entire thing, which he occasionally like gets kind of real, you know, and he's like, this yeah. is not cool to right, put right, babies yeah. in cages. But then it's like every two seconds, it's like, like there's like a sound effect of thunder. And then he's like, and today in Stormy Watch. And it's just like a thing that's like reminding you that the president had sex with a porn star as if like, as if that violates anything that I give a fuck about. Yeah. Like, and it's supposed to be like, isn't he a pig? And it's like, yeah, but haven't like 20 women accused him of rape? Yeah. Like, why isn't that? <laughs> but you're going to continuously, like, I get it. It's juicy and it gives an audience of primarily tourists yeah. who are in the audience. Like, they can all laugh at yeah, like, yeah, a yeah. joke at the expense of a porn star. Yeah. But like, that's the, that's what upsets you yeah. about him is that he like had sex with a consenting woman. Well, they can't they can't grapple with the reality of the situation. They can't grapple with horror because it would require a register of darkness to the comedy that they're not willing to or able, given its given you know the the audience that they're seeking to express. Yeah, like they can't do like Michael O'Donoghue shit. You know, they can't do you know like uh, Vietnamese uh, you know baby book. Yeah, they can't do that kind of thing for what we're doing every day. Because uh-huh. the model doesn't allow for it. You're on TV. You're for an audience of of mostly boomers who are trying to go to sleep. So it, it, it or or you know kind of uh, you know professional millennial professionals if you're talking about the cable shows. Yeah, and there really isn't an, an appetite for the sort of real grim, dark comedy that you would need to channel to even come close to describing the reality of what's happening every day. Yeah, so even the dissenting voices of the critique become victims of, like, operational negativity, where the superstructure is basically just like, okay, like, you can be palatable, and you can be dissenters, and you can be the sort of, like, you can be the the fool in the court uh, if you get to this point, but if anybody were to go, I mean, it's like, and then as soon as they kind of, like, toe, like, put their toe over the line a little bit, it's like, who cares that Samantha Bee called someone a cunt? I know. Like, who fucking cares? And then they're just... They're like now apologize. Yes, and it's like, it's like they yeah, like yeah. slap their hand because they yeah. get a, they get a, and that's not even like kind like you said that doesn't even begin to touch on the horrors yeah. of what's going on. But they're like, and they're so gleeful in their like descent. And I was watching. I used it as like a sound collage into the other day. And oh my god, I can't remember the woman's name, but it was like a Midwest. Um, uh, nightly news show and they're interviewing this like comedian from town who was going on like the nasty the nasty liberal tour oh hell yes. and she was like a comedian I got my tickets and they were like and they were like no just having I think it was on Fox News and they were like kind of humoring and they're like no just having a foil as easy as Trump like <laughs> does that um is that good for the whatever this woman's name is business or something and she just like turns with like the smarmiest thing to the host and she goes like I said the tour is sold out <laughs> And I was just like, you're literally monetizing. You're trafficking in human misery. You're traumatized. Oh, anyway, my God. Um, so we're getting to the end here, but I just wanted to ask uh, one last thing. And that that is, do you have uh, do you have any optimism for this uh, supposed blue wave? Uh, I mean, I'm on record. I have a bet with my co-host, Virgil Texas. Oh, you guys have a bet? Going. We have two bets. Okay, I missed I that. have $100. We never announced on the show, but okay. I have $100 on... The Democrats, he has $100 on the Democrats winning the House and another $100 on them winning the Senate. Uh, and I have... He's like the I've voting taken, wonk, right? Yeah. And I have money on both, uh, the Republicans holding on to both. Uh, because I think that the the Senate, is, he's actually, he shouldn't have made that bet because the Senate is very difficult just because of how many uh, Democrat seats are, are being, uh, defended mm-hmm. in red States. That's going to be tough regardless of anything else. So that's going to really, and they have to win seats in general. And I think that's going to be tougher for them, but in the house, I mean, the gerrymandering and voter suppression mechanisms are so entrenched now that yeah. they're going to have to, they're going to have to, the, the estimate is, is, is they would need something like 10% in in nationwide, uh, voting. They would need to win the popular vote of like everyone who votes for house members, by 10% in order to double to just to, across yeah, yeah to win to overcome the the, the gerrymandering and, and and the malapportionment in the house and I just don't see 
anything close to a party that could harness that kind of mobilization. I mean, they're totally, they have no coordinated message. No. Uh, a lot of them, the establishing guys are fixated on shit that people don't really care about, like Russia and, and things <laughs> like that. And, and Trump's, uh, Trump's lack of, uh, uh, lack of professionalism or whatever, mm-hmm. or, or like NATO or like all this shit. Uh, uh, there is going to be enough horror and outrage. I think that they will, uh, there will be Democrat. Uh, the Democrats are going to win. They're going to get more seats. I think they, but I think just, they need like 20 something. I think maybe they come like one or two short. Okay. That's my estimate. Yeah. Well, they have no fucking messaging. No, they have they, nothing. Nothing that anybody wants to hear. Like no. I, I just sent a bunch of family members and friends in Michigan, um, an email to encourage them to vote in the gubernatorial primary in Michigan. Mm-hmm. Um, Abdul El Sayed, yes. I think is his name. I yes. was just like, just literally listen to this man yeah. speak for two minutes right. about what he cares about. And it's just like, it doesn't matter what your ID politics or your like position on whether you think gays are going to hell. Like he's literally talking about the fact that the last 10 years in Michigan have been hell. Oh God. And, it's awful. And he's talking about healthcare. He's talking about getting, I mean, it's just, it's like just so clear. And it's like, that's the kind of messaging that people don't talk about how the person that they voted for previously is like sloppy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Talk about the largest structural system. But um, anyways, Matt, thanks for coming by. Yeah. Thank you uh, for having me. We got to plug the uh, August 21st, I think is the release at the strand for the Chapo guide to revolution. Yes. Yes. That's the, that's our debut. Okay. So I'll put a link to get tickets to that in the episode description for anybody listening that's going to be at the strand here in new york city and does the book uh i mean you can pre-order it now oh right? yeah, yeah you can get it at anywhere that they're sold online and i believe the rallying cry is to sell enough to get it to number one just to piss off all the other people exactly <laughs> we realize that 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 all politics is spite now yeah and so we're no no one is above it including our fans and if you want to own pod save america if you want to own jordan peterson if you want to own all of your mind enemies that we all share then put them put us on the top of that list cool uh well matt christman thank you so much i know you've got a busy schedule and to everybody out there who's listening we'll catch you next week bye do you have a show did you really love one that you feel so groovy in you don't even mind if it starts to fade that only makes it nicer still I love my shirt I love my shirt My shirt is so comfortably lovely I love my shirt I love my shirt My shirt is so comfortably lovely Do you have some jeans that you really love? Ones that you feel so groovy in You don't even mind if they start to fray That only makes them nicer still I love my jeans, I love my jeans My jeans are so comfortably lovely I love my jeans, I love my jeans My jeans are so comfortably lovely When I take them to the cleaners I can't wait to get them home again Yes, I take them to the cleaners I'd rather wash them in a stream in a stream Know what I mean Do you have some shoes that you really love Ones that you feel so flash in You don't even mind If they start to get some holes in That only makes them nicer still I love my shoes I love my shoes My shoes are so comfortably lovely I love my jeans I love my jeans My jeans are so comfortably lovely I love my shirt I love my shirt 